Book 4, Chapter 3, Part 1 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Salim Siddiqui. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 4 Organization. Chapter 3, Part 1. Unsalaried Officials. We have seen, when treating of privileges and exemptions, the distinction drawn between salaried and unsalaried officials. The former, except in the case of physicians and advocates of the accused, were understood to devote all their time to the service of the tribunal. The latter were only called upon incidentally for special work. It is true that the Inquisition was in power to summon every one for aid, but its service was confidential and its ministers, at least in the latter period, had to be of unblemished lineage, so that it was requisite to have at hand those on whom it could rely and whom it could summon at any moment. There was no difficulty in finding men ready to serve without pay. The honor of connection with the Inquisition, the privilege of its furo in greater or lesser degree, and the assurance of limpieza which it carried with it rendered applicants for appointment more numerous than positions to be filled. These unsalaried officials consisted of calificadores, consultores, commissioners with their notaries, and familiars. The function of the calificador or censor were important. When the sumeria or preliminary array of evidence against the accused was collected, the theological points involved were submitted to three or four calificadores, who pronounced whether the acts or words testified to amounted to heresy or suspicion of heresy. If there was doubt or disagreement, another group was called in, to whom the opinions of the first were given, along with the evidence. If the conclusion was that the matter did not concern the Inquisition, the case was dropped or suspended. If it held that there was heresy, expressed or implied, arrest and trial followed. We have seen the working of the system in the cases of Carranza and Villanueva, in both of which it played so momentous a part. In addition to this was the censorship of books. Any work against which suspicion was aroused was submitted to them, and, according to their decision, it was approved, expurgated, or suppressed. To perform these duties properly required learned theologians, and they seem to have enjoyed the opportunity of displaying their erudition and prolix and elaborate opinions, developing vast ingenuity and discovering traces of the beliefs of the Marcinionites and the Carpocratians and other forgotten heresies and the careless propositions submitted to their criticism. As a matter of course, only ecclesiastics were eligible in 1627, the minimum age was fixed at forty-five. The duties of this profitless office were not light. If we may believe the experienced Fray Maestro Alvarado, in 1811 he complains that if a book is sent to a calificador, no matter what his other engagements may be, he must devote a month or two to reading it and forming a judgment, expressed in an elaborate opinion such as would command for a lawyer two or three thousand reals or some modern philosopher utters scandals and the calificador must investigate his words and acts, 
and point out the errors as a guide for the inquisitor. If a trial follows, the calificador must wait on the tribunal and rack his brains to decide whether the culprit's explanations are valid. If he is contumacious, conferences must be held with him until he is converted or found incapable of conversion, and all this without recompense. The calificador was thus an important and laborious assistant in the current work of the tribunal, and it is somewhat remarkable that although reckoned among the officials, with a recognized place in public functions, there should be doubt whether he was entitled to the furo. Yet in 1662, when Dr. Vincente Cortes, a cathedral canon and calificador of the Valencia Tribunal, was involved in a suit, it declined to defend him. It's reported to the Suprema that it was ignorant whether calificadores were entitled to the furo, and the council replied, asking on what ground the privilege was claimed. The need of calificadores was not likely to be felt in the early period, when almost the whole business of the Inquisition was with Judaizers and Moriscos, whose guilt was assumed from their adherence to well-known customs and rites. The first allusion I have met occurs in 1520, when the inquisitors were ordered to make no appointment without submitting to the Suprema the petition of the applicant. There is no reference to them in the Instrucciones Antiguas, but in the Nuevas of 1561, their employment is fully developed. As the appointment was in the hands of the inquisitors, there was a tendency to undo multiplication, and in 1606, there was an effort to check this by calling for reports as to the number existing, and how many were necessary, pending which no applicants were to be admitted. This resulted the following year in an order limiting the number to eight in each tribunal. Only the most eminent theologians were to be selected and appointments were to be made only to fill vacancies. Again in 1619, reports were called for an emphasis was laid on the importance of the position and the necessity of discrimination in the choice. This received scant attention, and the memorial of 1623 to the Suprema recommends the reduction of the number to three or four in each tribunal and the exercise of great care in appointments, for lack of which they had fallen so greatly in public estimation. Nothing was done, and in 1630 the fiscal of the Suprema called attention to the fact that but few tribunals had made the reports demanded in 1619. Meanwhile, the necessity for reform had increased, and he asked that information be called for again, so that, with full information, the Suprema might remedy the evils existing. The futility of the effort to limit the tribunals in the exercise of their patronage is visible in the statistics of 1746, where Valencia has 40 calificadores, Saragossa has 29, and even the little tribunal of Mallorca has 24. If Lerena has none, and Legrono only two, this is explicable, as we learn from another source, by the absence in those places of men competent for the position. Yet not much attention was paid to the selection of suitable material, if we may believe an official report presented to Carlos IV in 1798 which says that it is notorious that calificadores are mostly people of little learning, full of preconceptions and errors, who have had money enough to take out proofs of limpieza. In the medieval inquisition, 
all sentences were agreed upon in an assembly of experts summoned for the purpose by the inquisitors, prior to holding the auto de fe in which the sentences were executed. This custom was naturally followed in Spain, and these consultas de fe, as they were called, will be considered hereafter when treating of the conduct of trials. At present we have merely to consider the consultores who assisted the inquisitors in passing judgment. At first, they had no permanent connection to the Inquisition. The Inquisitors had an unlimited power of summoning all persons in whatever capacity, but sometimes it was not easy to obtain the services of competent men, especially when migratory tribunals were sitting in places where jurists were few, and the instructions of 1488 in response to complaints on this score tell Inquisitors in such cases to send the papers to the Suprema which will decide on them. At this time the inquisitors were theologians, and, to supplement their lack of legal knowledge, it was customary to call in lawyers. The incongruity of laymen sitting in judgment on matters of faith was waived, and they were freely employed, the inquisitors summoning such doctors and maestros and licenciados and bachelares as they saw fit, who served without pay and might never be called in again. In 1502, the Barcelona Tribunal complained that it sometimes had difficulty in securing the services of the lawyers of the Audencia, whereupon Ferdinand wrote to his lieutenant-general that, as it is a work of God and the services required only two or three times a year, he must see that the inquisitors get them whenever they are wanted. In 1515, the same trouble showed itself at Villadolid, where the inquisitors were in the habit of calling in the judges of the high court, who endeavored to evade the duty by alleging certain royal chedulas prohibiting their engaging in other functions than those of their office. Ferdinand was appealed to and promptly ordered them to serve when called upon, but they were not to be obliged to absent themselves from court during the hours of its sessions. Apparently there was no eagerness to perform gratuitous service which brought with it no privileges. When in time jurists were preferred in the tribunals, the inquisitors called in theologians, mostly from the regular orders, who to a great degree monopolized the learning of the church. Even with these there were sometimes difficulty, and in 1544 the Suprema asked the Dominican vicar to rebuke the prior of San Pedro Martir for forbidding his fries to serve. It had already been found that the chance selection made when a consulta de fe was to be held, was unsatisfactory. The permanent office of consultor was created, and was rendered attractive by attaching to it the privileges and immunities of the holy office. Formal commissions were issued by the inquisitor-general, and the appointee swore to the faithful discharge of his duties. The earliest commission that I have met is one issued April 2, 1544, to Dr. Miguel de Nuedes, Archdeacon of Morvedro, as consultor in the Tribunal of Valencia. This continued for some twenty years when confusion and contradictions arose. January 16, 1565, the Suprema writes that neither it nor the Inquisitor-General is accustomed to notify any one of his appointment as consultor. The Inquisitors can appoint properly qualified persons whenever they are needed. In 1566, this was followed by admonitions as to the care necessary in examining into the fitness of aspirants, and then, in 1567, 
Inquisitors were scolded for making appointments without reporting them and awaiting orders. This was repeated in 1571, but in 1572, Rojas asserts positively that consultors are not selected by inquisitors, but are appointed by the Suprema. The Suprema continued to retain control, but ceased to issue regular commissions, for in 1645, a writer informs us that the consultor and calificador are received and sworn in on the strength of a letter from the Suprema. Finally, however, the matter was restored in the inquisitors. A formulary of about 1700 contains the form of a commission issued to the consultors. It is drawn in the name of the inquisitors who confer on the recipient the powers necessary for the discharge of his duties and order all secular officials to yield him all the honors, graces, franchises, exemptions, liberties, and prerogatives inherent in his office. He was obliged to furnish proofs of his purity of blood and, if he was married, of that of his wife, thus giving another example of the capacity of laymen to act in judgments of faith. With the progressive centralization of business in the Suprema, the consulta de fe gradually diminished in importance. As we shall see in the 18th century, it became virtually obsolete. The table of officials in 1746 shows that at that time there were only 18 consultores in all the tribunals, and of these, eight were in the little inquisition of Majorca. The office of commissioner was peculiar to the Spanish Inquisition, and although its powers were strictly limited, it was an important factor in keeping the authority of the Holy Office constantly before the people and in detecting offenders in obscure places where they might otherwise have enjoyed security. It was not part of the original organization and there is no reference to it in the instructions. It is true that in 1509 Ferdinand addresses a certain Beltran de la Sala of Perpignan as Commissioner of the Inquisition, but he is also Host de Sorios or in charge of couriers on the important line between Spain and Italy. He was therefore not a commissioner in the latter sense, but probably was employed to look after the sequestrations which had been extensive in Perpignan. As the tribunals became sedentary in their extensive districts, the need of representatives scattered everywhere made itself felt, and the first suggestion seems to have come from Valencia. The Suprema represented December 4, 1537 to Cardinal Manrique, the size of the district of Valencia, where the difficulties of intercommunication were such that it never had been and never could be properly visited. It was therefore proposed that in the cathedral towns, commissioners should be appointed with power to publish the edicts and to take testimony and ratifications with notaries. The cathedral clergy would probably furnish proper appointees serving without pay as the duties would be only occasional. This corresponds so nearly with the plan adopted that it may safely be assumed to be its origin. Authority was given to inquisitors to appoint commissioners, but apparently at first the limitation on their powers was ill-defined. The visitation of Barcelona in 1549 showed that they undertook to arrest and prosecute, in fact to make themselves inquisitors in their little districts, and in 1550 the Suprema instructed the tribunal to grant faculties only to receive denunciations, 
collect evidence, and send it to the Inquisition for its action. This remained the rule until the end. In the cartillas, or detailed printed instructions, they were forbidden to make arrests unless three conditions coexisted, that the case clearly pertained to the holy office, that the evidence was ample, and that there was apprehension of flight. Even then they were warned to act only on mature deliberation, and they were forbidden to sequestrate property, though they were to keep an eye on it. If an arrest took place, the prisoner and the evidence were to be transmitted to the tribunal under guard of familiars, without being allowed to communicate with anyone. In addition, the commissioner could hear the civil cases of familiars, up to the value of twenty libras, and execute his decisions. All this was concisely expressed in the commission issued to him. As in everything else, it was impossible to enforce compliance with wholesome regulations. Cervantes, in the report of his Barcelona visitation of 1561, says that commissioners paid no attention to the limitations of their powers. They were thoroughly untrained and ignorant of their duties and had no hesitation in appointing other commissioners. As they had authority to appoint a notary and an alguazil, they set up little courts throughout the land, armed with the awful authority of the holy office, and it requires no stretch of the imagination to conceive the tyranny and extortation with which they afflicted the people. Not much was gained when, in 1561, the Suprema ordered that they should be appointed only in places where it was necessary that they must be quiet and peaceable persons, or in 1565 when it prescribed great care in issuing commissions which must be so limited as to prevent them from appointing deputies. Salazar's report of his inspection of Barcelona in 1566 shows that the evil continued unchecked. Commissioners were appointed in unnecessary numbers, often by a single inquisitor during a visitation, and sometimes they were ignorant laymen, although the office inferred that it should be reserved exclusively to those in holy orders. It is not strange that this new infliction, which seemed to bring the terrors of the Inquisition to every man's door, should form the subject of vigorous remonstrances and the Concordias of 1568, by their enumeration of what was forbidden, show the abuses under which the populations were suffering. That of Valencia provided that there should be such officials only in Tortosa, Sogorbe, Teruel, Gandia, Castellon de la Plana, Denia and Yativa, with two in the city of Valencia, and that they should be called deputized commissioners and not, as heretofore, lieutenant inquisitors. That of Aragon limited them to Lerida, Huesca, Terrazona, Daroca, Calatuyud, Iaco, Barbastro, and towns on the French frontier. Both provided that in future they should not try cases, or make arrests save to prevent flight, nor should they grant licenses for the importation or exportation of provisions and other matters. They might have an assessor and a notary, enjoying all privileges and exemptions, and if an alguazil was needed they could assign that post to a familiar without enlarging his exemptions. All this is eloquent of the methods by which these would-be local inquisitors had magnified their office to the vexation of the people. 
Catalonia rejected the Concordia of 1568, and in the Cortes of 1599, it demanded that neither rectors of churches nor friars should be appointed as commissioners. To this, the Suprema, in its memorial to Clement VIII, replied that the object was to prevent the Inquisition from having proper commissioners, as Catalonia was too poor in the requisite material to exclude these classes and places where there were no cathedrals or collegiate churches. In 1572, the Suprema made an effort to check the multiplication of these officials by decreeing that they should be appointed only in the chief towns of archpriestly districts, but it promptly receded from this and the next year authorized them wherever it seemed necessary, which amounted to unlimited permission. An order in 1576 that they were not to be defended in prosecutions for concubinage is suggestive as to the prevailing morality, and in 1584 they were instructed to keep in constant correspondence with the tribunals, reporting everything that occurred in their district, which indicates how comprehensive a system of espionage was established. The Suprema, in a Carta Acordada of March 24th, 1604, made a serious attempt to check existing evils. It called attention to the abuses in appointing commissioners, notaries, and familiars, whose multitude and general unworthiness resulted in greatly impairing the authority of the Inquisition. In future, commissioners were to be appointed only in the chief towns of the partidos, or local judicial districts, or at least four leagues apart. Inquisitors should bear in mind that their duties embrace cases of the utmost importance, requiring men of intelligence, virtue, and silence. They should have benefices or revenues sufficient to live with the dignity befitting their high office. The prescription as to number and location received scant obedience. We chanced to meet with them in obscure places like Cobena and Fuentalzas, and a list of them in little province of Guipuzacao, which has but four partidos, amount to seventeen. An experienced writer in 1648, after reciting the limitations, states that there are places where there are three or four, disguised by appointments nominally to neighboring hamlets. Although without salary, the office had become attractive, not only on account of the importance and immunities which it conferred, but also because a large part of the attendant labor brought in sac satisfactory fees. In the eagerness to prove limpieza, investigations into genealogies were perpetual. Nearly all these passed through the Inquisition and were confided to the commissioner nearest to the birthplace of the applicant. He was expected to pay roundly, and the commissioner was entitled to sixteen reals a day for his time, or to two ducats if he had to leave his residence, Moreover, the knowledge thus acquired of the genealogies of his neighbors gave him power to render them uncomfortable, as we may gather from a Carta Acordada of 1622 forbidding commissioners to make notes of the ancestry of those who were not officials of the Inquisition, and threatening dismissal for stigmatizing anyone as a Jew, Moor, Converso, or descendant of such. At seaports and frontier towns, also, the commissioners had a considerable source of revenue from fees for the examinations requisite to prevent the entrance of heretics and heretic books, fees which, as we shall see hereafter, were the abundant source of complaint. These positions the inquisitor-general reserved 
for his own appointment and finally all those in the cathedral towns and larger cities in the effort at reform made by philip v investigation was made into the character of the commissioners their notaries and the familiars and soon after this in seventeen o six the Suprema asserted that in Castile there was not one-fourth of the number permitted by the Concordia of 1553, which attributed partly to the war of secession then raging and partly to the molestation to which they were exposed. Unquestionably the number declined rapidly during the 18th century, as will be seen by the table in the appendix where, although Saragossa still has 38 and Barcelona 28, the other tribunals report only from two to seven, except the Canaries, where the scattered group of islands necessarily demanded a considerable number. This diminution may be explained by the growing habit of appointing temporary commissioners in any place where work was to be done. Moreover, the increasing facilities of communication favored local centralization in the tribunal, even as general centralization was stimulated in the Suprema. Denunciations were readily sent by mail, and temporary commissions were issued for their investigation. So, too, in the matter of limpieza, the tribunal could dispense its patronage more profitably by sending out from headquarters special commissioners who earned a larger per diem at the expense of the applicant. To accommodate this new development, when in 1816 a new cartilla of instructions for commissioners was printed, it provided at the end with a number of blank commissions which could be detached and filled in for use a hundred copies were supplied to each tribunal twenty of them bound to be used as a whole and eighty in sheets to be thus cut up within a month one tribunal applied for a further stock and fifty copies were sent little as the inquisitors of the time had to do they were evidently devolving their duties upon others more generally than ever in a previous chapter it has been seen that of all the officials of the Inquisition, those who occasioned the most frequent trouble and who aroused the most strenuous animadversion were the familiars. They were the most numerous, they were largely drawn from the turbulent element, seeking the position for the protection afforded against secular justice, and they abused their privileges accordingly. For more than two centuries they were an object of dread to all peaceable folk, and no stronger evidence can be furnished of the subjection to which the Inquisition had reduced Spain than the tolerance of this dangerous class, whose services were overpaid by the immunities which relieved the Inquisition from paying salaries. In the medieval Inquisition, the Inquisitor had the right to surround himself with armed guards, whether to protect his person or to execute his orders. They were reckoned as members of his family, thence obtaining the name of familiars, entitling them to immunity from justice. They were dreaded and hated, not without reason, for the position was attractive only to the ruffian and brawler. Nor was anything gained when in 1213 the Council of Vienne warned inquisitors to be moderate and discreet in their use of the privilege. Of course, the old Aragonese Inquisition enjoyed this prerogative, and when the new Inquisition was organized, it inherited the right. This, moreover, was developed in an entirely novel manner, for the familiar was not attached to the person of the Inquisitor. Appointments were made all over the land. 
the Inquisition thus obtaining, without cost, a small army of servitors, scattered everywhere, sworn to obedience and ready at any moment to perform whatever duty they might be called upon to render. They served, moreover, as spies upon their neighbors, and were eager to manifest their zeal by volunteer action, for it was commonplace of the canon law that the heretic could be arrested by anyone. It was impossible that such a class as this, released from the restraints of law, should not prove troublesome and even dangerous. Inquisitors appointed them at discretion, furnished them with licenses to bear arms, and turned them loose on the community. It would have been some slight protection if registers of these appointments had been kept, and the names of the appointees furnished to the magistrates so that it could be known whether those who claimed immunity were entitled to it. It was impossible, however, to induce the inquisitors to do this. Zemenes and the Suprema ordered the names to be entered in a book and copy to be furnished to the corregidors, and Ferdinand, in a general order of July 11th, 1513, emphasized this, but to no purpose, and it was repeated endlessly with the same result. The inquisitors steadily refused obedience, for it would have imposed some check upon multitudinous and indiscriminate appointments which had a recognized money value. The result of all this appears in a letter of Ferdinand in 1514 to the inquisitors of Toledo, informing them that the royal and municipal authorities complained of the number of turbulent fellows, carrying licenses, signed by only one inquisitor, who went around in bands disturbing the peace, and if the civil magistrate endeavored to restrain them, the tribunal at once interposed, leading to dissensions between it and the ministers of justice, to the great injury of the city and its vicinity. Zeminis had already endeavored to check these orders without success, and Ferdinand now insists that his orders must be obeyed, that all such licenses must be signed by the three inquisitors, a record of them must be kept, and a copy be furnished to the corregidor. End of Book 4, Chapter 3, Part 1 Recording by Salim Siddiqui www.hotconflict.com